Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. This morning, I want to carry on with our series from the book of Exodus. And uh, this morning, we're into chapter 2, and I want to read with you verses 1 through 10. And I'm reading from the Living Bible. There were at this time a Hebrew fellow and a girl of the tribe of Levi who married and had a family, and a baby son was born to them. When the baby's mother saw that he was an unusually beautiful baby, she hid him at home for three months. Then when she could no longer hide him, she made a little boat from papyrus reeds, waterproofed it with tar, put the baby in it and laid it among the reeds along the river's edge. The baby's sister watched from a distance to see what would happen to him. Well, this is what happened. A princess, one of Pharaoh's daughters, came down to bathe in the river, and as she found and as she and her maids were walking along the riverbank, she spied the little boat among the reeds and sent one of her maids to bring it to her. When she opened it, there was a baby, and he was crying. This touched her heart. He must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess and asked, Shall I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, do, the princess replied. So the little girl rushed home and called her mother. Take this child home and nurse him for me, the princess instructed the baby's mother, and I will pay you well. So she took him home and nursed him. Later, when he was older, she brought him back to the princess, and he became her son. She named him Moses, meaning to draw out, because she had drawn him out of the water. This, This chapter is full of divine irony. Pharaoh's chosen instrument of destruction, which is the Nile, is the means by which Moses is saved. The daughters that Pharaoh allowed to live are the ones that ultimately thwart his plans. The mother saves Moses by following Pharaoh's orders, but with a twist. A member of Pharaoh's own family undermines his policies and saves the very first person who will do what Pharaoh is frightened will happen. Moses' mother got paid out of Pharaoh's coffers for doing the thing that she longed to do. The irony of God is that he uses the weak, the lowly, the despised to shame the strong. He delights to work through the powerless and the most unlikely people and in the most unlikely places. And this ironic mode fosters a sense that in any situation where God seems to be absent, in actual fact, he's present and working. As we sing, even when we don't see it, he's working. Even when we don't feel it, he's working. Another thing that would be interesting perhaps for you to pursue in your own study is the parallels of this passage with the story of Noah in the book of Genesis. Both Noah and Moses are adrift on a watery chaos, but both are divinely appointed ones through whom God will ultimately bring deliverance. Both are saved by an ark. It's actually the same Hebrew word in both cases. And interestingly, both are said to be covered with tar or bitumen to keep them waterproof. And the Hebrew word for bitumen is actually the word that means atonement, which sets off all kinds of bells ringing in terms of future study and themes worth following through. The immediate background of chapter 2 is the terrifying situation that is recorded in the last verse of chapter 21. Pharaoh's brutal rule and then his final inhuman edict would be one that 
you could only imagine would actually be a powerful disincentive to marriage and childbearing for the Israeli people. But the first thing we read in this passage is that a Hebrew fellow and a girl of the tribe of Levi marry and have a family. Now, we aren't told their names here, but in chapter 6, verse 20, we know that they are Amram and Jochebed. They had two children before Pharaoh's edict came into play, an older sister that they called Miriam, and then a younger brother called Aaron. After the edict, Jochebed fell pregnant again, and she bears uh, another boy. The scripture says he is unusually beautiful, or one translation says she saw that he was good. And that has echoes of Genesis chapter 1, where God created and said it's, it's good. Another translation says he was fair to God. Now, I think what we're talking about here is much more than simply natural parental affection, although I'm sure that wasn't lacking either. Now, you might say, well, Don, how do you know that? Well, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23 in the Amplified Bible says, By faith, Moses, after his birth, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful and divinely favored child. What these parents did is said to happen by faith. Now, Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that seems to imply that this couple had some form of revelation about the child. What they did wasn't acted out of either human defiance or carnal recklessness, but they are motivated by what the scripture calls the obedience of faith. Now, Amram and Jochebed were slaves and they needed deliverance. And yet in this instance, God prompts them to act as deliverers to this child. There are clearly divine purposes associated with the child. And so this couple set themselves to the limit of their ability and to the level of their faith to deliver and develop this child. That, by the way, is one of the key themes of this study. We know that we need deliverance, and yet God asks of us that we be deliverers for other people. So by faith, Amram and Jochebed hide the child for three months. Now, when it comes to faith, there are different levels and degrees and spheres of, of both faith and delivering ability. Romans chapter 12 and verse 3 says, God has appointed to each a degree of faith and a purpose designed for service. So there are degrees and levels of faith. In 2 Kings chapter 11, a priestly couple by the name of Jehoiada and Jehosheba hide another child. That child is Joash, one of the king's sons, and they hide him for six years from the wrath of the wicked queen Athaliah. So Amram and Jochebed hide Moses for three months. Jehosheba and Jehoiada hide Joash for six years. Different levels, as it were, of, of faith. But we are called to function at the level that we're at, knowing uh, that as we do the best we can faithfully, the level actually can be enlarged. We, we do what we can where we are. We sow the seeds that we have, even if they seem somewhat small and insignificant, believing God and his faithfulness to allow that to be enlarged. Uh, some of you may recall having read a book called Mover of Men and Mountains by R.G. Letourneau. Now, he had a real desire and faith for giving. He started off giving his 10%, giving his tithe, 
But as the story unfolds, um, he, he develops in terms of his experience of God's faithfulness to his faith. And in the end, Latonia was given 90% of what he earned and keeping the 10%. Our faith, our faith can grow as we um, function with faithfulness. At the end of three months, this couple could no longer hide the child. To continue to do so would be certain death, not just for the child, but probably for the whole family. So Jochebed constructed a little ark, placed the child inside. For those of you who remember the movie The Prince of Egypt, she, in the movie, pushes the ark out onto the flow of the Nile and it avoids crocodiles and hippos and slave galleys and dramatically ends up on the banks of the river further downstream. Our biblical text actually doesn't say that. That's, uh, that's poetic license on Spielberg's part. It actually says she set it among the reeds by the bank. She didn't push the little ark out into the current all the while singing K-Sarah, Sarah. She deliberately positioned it. And it seems that Jochebed had given a great deal of thought to her actions and had come up with a daring plan. She had faith, but she had a plan as well. Those two aren't antithetical. This wise mother had observed and identified certain habits, the certain habits of one of Pharaoh's daughter. At a certain place and at a particular time, this princess came down to the banks of the river, possibly to bathe with her maidens or possibly to worship, as the Egyptians considered the Nile to actually be a god. So Jochebed placed the ark judiciously at a time and place that the princess and her attendants came to the river in the hope that they would notice it and perhaps hoping that the princess might believe that the river god had delivered the contents of the ark to her. Recent archaeological digs have found an ancient religious rite associated with the worship of the god of the Nile, and it included a statement of trust that the worshippers would repeat, and it incorporated the words, I have afflicted no man, I have not made any man weep, I have not withheld milk from the mouth of a suckling. Now, conceivably, the princess might have taken such an oath. Now, we don't know, but what we do know is that she retrieved the ark from the rushes and opened it to find a baby crying. And the scripture says her heart was moved by the sight and the sound. A baby's tear pivots this whole story. And we see in scripture that small things are maybe small hinges, but they open large doors. In this case, a baby's tears. In Genesis 41, it was a dream that Pharaoh had. In Esther chapter 6, it's a night of a king's insomnia. A tent peg in a woman's hand and a jawbone in a man's hand in the book of Judges. And five smooth stones in the pocket and pouch of a shepherd boy's hand. It seems, as I said before, that God delights to use small things and insignificant nobodies to move his plans forward. You can go back over the history of revival and very often the leaders and key people in the revival didn't come from the ruling class, weren't necessarily from the academic intellectual uh, circles of the time. In the Protestant Reformation, for example, Martin Luther was a miner's son. John Calvin was a cooper's son. Ulrich Zingwilly's a shepherd's son. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, God chooses what the world calls foolish to shame the wise. He's chosen what the world calls weak to shame the strong. He's chosen things of little strength and small repute. Yes, even the things which have no real existence to explode the pretension of things that are. 
You know, Pharaoh's daughters is one of the unexpected heroines of the Bible. It's important to see that God's story is not just one in which individuals or whole nations are simplistically portrayed as being immutably good or bad. All the Egyptians weren't evil in the same way that all the Hebrews weren't good. As bad as this girl's father might have been, this woman seems to have her merits. And you know, it would do well for us to remember the words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn when he said, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. And then he profoundly says, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Without this Egyptian princess, there might have been no Moses and no Exodus. She had very little to gain by her actions and a great deal to lose. To get the sense of the impact of her action, imagine she's Adolf Hitler's daughter saving a Jewish child or uh, Stalin's daughter saving a Russian peasant child. Pharaoh's daughter isn't named, but there's a fascinating passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 18. In the midst of a long list of names, it says these words, and, there were the, and, and these were the sons of Bethiah, the daughter of Pharaoh, whom Merid married. And some ancient scholars identify uh, this woman as the Pharaoh's daughter that saved Moses. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Bethiah means daughter of God, and the ancient scholars said that Yahweh said to her, Moses was not your son, yet you called him your son. You are not my daughter, yet I shall call you my daughter. It was Pharaoh's daughter that actually gave Moses his name. We see that in chapter 2, verse 10, and the name means drawn out. Clearly in the Torah, it was normally the parents who named the children. And we assume that Amram and Jochebed had given the child a name for at least that first three months, but we aren't told what it was. Whatever it was, he isn't known by it. Even God calls him Moses, the name that the Egyptian princess gave him. Joseph had an Egyptian name, Zaphnath Baaniah, but he was always known by his Hebrew name, Joseph. Perhaps in honor of this Gentile woman, Moses remained his name, and he is drawn out for all of his days. You know, outside the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, there is an avenue dedicated to the righteous Gentiles who helped Jewish people during the Holocaust. Perhaps Pharaoh's daughter should have her name inscribed in that avenue as well. These stories from chapter 1 and 2 of Exodus, the midwives in chapter 1 and Jochebed and Pharaoh's daughter in chapter 2, all highlight and speak to an issue that is very much a hot potato in our particular culture, and it's the issue of civil disobedience. Is it right to disobey and resist the government and those who rule over it? Uh, who rule over us. Where is the dividing line in civil disobedience of Exodus 1 and 2 and the passages that we find in the New Testament in Romans chapter 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2? Let, let me read those to you. Romans chapter 13 verses 1 to 3 goes, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment upon themselves. 
In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, Peter says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. It's a fine line and a difficult line between Exodus 1 and 2 and Romans and 1 Peter. In Exodus 1 and 2, we are provided with the first, but no, by no means the last, example of civil disobedience in the Bible. Instances where people choose to disobey the state authorities because of their commitment to obedience to a higher authority, Almighty God himself. A couple of the better known examples of that civil disobedience would be Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who refused to bow down to the king's golden image. Also in Acts chapter 5, the apostles are commanded by the Sanhedrin not to preach the gospel. But it says, but Peter and the other apostles answered, we ought to obey God rather than men. When, when Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, the implication, the clear implication was that all things don't belong to Caesar. Some things should never be given to Caesar. But where and how do we discern whose is whose? What is Caesar's and what does not belong to Caesar? And living in this part of the story requires both discernment and courage. The author John Stott says, The disciples of Jesus are to respect the state and within limits submit to it. But they will neither worship it or give it the uncritical support it covets. We are to submit to the state because its authority is derived from God and its ministers are God's ministers right up to the point where obedience to the state would involve us in disobedience to God. If the state misuses its God-given authority and presumes to command what God forbids or forbids what God commands, we have to say no to the state in order to say yes to God. As I say, this requires discernment and courage. The examples that we do see of civil disobedience in the scripture seem to me to center around very significant issues. For Daniel's three friends, it involved refusing to bow down to an idol. It involved idolatry. For the apostles, it involved refusing to be silent about preaching of the gospel. You know, I suspect in our individualistic, atomistic culture, People are ready to shout civil disobedience at the drop of, a, of the proverbial hat. Whenever we disagree with a government edict of any kind, civil disobedience seems to be on the cards. Now, I'm all for democracy, I'm all for free speech, and even for lawful protest. But it seems to me civil disobedience involving disruption, intimidation, and even violence is several bridges beyond what I've just described. Now, you've got to remember when Paul penned the words of Romans 13, Nero was the Caesar. His exhortation to obey Caesar's and Nero's governmental authority was written to a group of people who hardly would have endorsed all that Nero had laid down as laws. Much of what Nero said would have been offensive to this Christian community. And yet Paul counsels, where possible, be subject to his rule. That means, I think, that civil disobedience is to be engaged in sparingly and wisely. Even when it is justified to resist authority and to participate in civil disobedience, the attitude in which it's done is very, very important. 
You know, when resisting, um, it's very easy to become the very thing that we are opposed to. Hence the old saying, be careful when fighting a dragon lest you become one. Dr. Martin Luther King, the leader of the civil rights movement in the United States in the 1960s, wrote a letter from the Birmingham jail in Alabama to a group of clergymen who had penned a letter publicly criticizing his movement for their civil disobedience. And in the letter, King defended his right and the movement's right to engage in acts of civil disobedience and to resist the unjust and ungodly segregation laws that existed because of their commitment to a higher law, to God's law. However, what he did do was acknowledge how that protest was done and in what spirit it was done was vitally important. And he said, one who breaks an unjust law must do it openly lovingly and with a willingness to accept the penalty. In the scripture, God seems to be very concerned with how people respond to authority, not just to his sovereign authority, but also to the delegate authority at all levels. And we who are being groomed to be uh, uh, deliverers must come to terms with the principle of God's authority and how we respond to those who exercise it on his behalf. There's a powerful passage in Matthew chapter 8. Many of you will be familiar with it. Uh, Jesus says uh, to, to a Roman centurion that he will heal his servant. And the centurion responds, Just give the order and my servant will be fine. I'm a man who takes orders and gives orders. I tell one soldier, go and he goes. To another, come and he comes. Do this and he does it. Jesus is taken aback and he says, I've yet to come across this kind of simple trust in Israel, the very people who are supposed to know all about God and how he works. Now, I think this basic principle uh, emerges from this passage and, and trying to outline it, it goes something like this. You are not fit to exercise authority until you know how to function under it. If you can't be led, then you can't lead. Let me jump ahead in our story a few chapters and look at how God tested Moses on this very point of how he responded to delegated authority. After Moses has a dramatic encounter at the burning bush and is commissioned by God to go back to Egypt to deliver his people, he returns back to his home, to his shepherd's base. And in chapter 4, verse 18, Moses went, returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt to see whether they still are alive. Now, Jethro represents to Moses delegated authority at various levels and in different spheres. Firstly, he represents spiritual authority. In chapter 2, verse 16, he's called the, pri the priest of Midian. Now, Midian was the fourth son of Keturah, Abraham's second wife. And it's likely that at this recent point, they were still, the Midianites were, were worshippers of Yahweh. Jethro is sometimes called Reuel, which means the friend or shepherd of God. And later in the story, Jethro was to give to Moses some very wise advice. He is obviously a very spiritual and discerning man, so he represents spiritual authority to Moses. Secondly, Jethro was Moses' employer, and so he represents civil authority. Moses looked after Jethro's flocks. Thirdly, Jethro represents domestic authority. He was Moses' father-in-law. 
So at various levels and spheres, Jethro speaks to Moses of delegated authority. And I want you to note Moses's attitude and approach to spiritual authority as it resides in this man, Jethro. He comes and meekly and humbly and politely says, please let me go. There's no hint of independence or rebellion. He does not come swaggering back into camps saying or thinking, what would this guy know? He hasn't seen a burning bush. He hasn't heard the audible voice of God. Why would I bother asking him anything, let alone permission to go and do what God has already told me to do? I'm not asking anything. I'm telling. There is no sign of that in Moses, no contemptuous, self-righteous, pride-filled attitude. In fact, in Numbers chapter 12, we're told Moses was a very meek, the meekest man in all the earth. And we see it exhibited in this instance. In our desire to know and act for God, we must discern this fact about the Almighty. He resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. So I would suggest that we tread gently and softly when we're dealing with authority, even when it is particularly not good or godly. Now, I'm very aware in saying the things that I'm saying, and when you, when you, when you ever use the word submission, um, there's, there's understandable hesitation on so many people's parts. So many of us have been bruised and battered by loveless authority figures and sometimes made even more troubling by the fact that these abusive authority figures claimed the support of God as they trampled all over us. And as a result, many of us battle with what has been termed a hermeneutic of suspicion. Authority figures are guilty until proven innocent. Friends, the answer to abuse is never abuse at the other end of the scale. It is not individual anarchy, removing ourselves from any kind of authority and doing that which is right in our own eyes. We have to find a healthy balance. Submission never ever requires mindless submission to somebody else's domination of my life. Submission actually doesn't mean I have to obey every directive that is given by authority figures. As I say, sometimes it requires wise discernment and a great deal of courage to be able to say, no, I won't do that. Be careful not to mix up these, uh, these two uh, pairs of responses. The opposite to submission is rebellion. The opposite to obedience is disobedience. Don't muddle those. Sometimes authority figures will say, if you don't obey, you're rebellious. That's not true. If you don't obey, you're disobedient. The opposite of submission is rebellion. The opposite of obedience is disobedience. You can actually be submissive and disobey. And we see that in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They don't um, self-righteously oppose the king. They don't tell him, oh, get off your high horse. There's no way we're bowing down to your idol. You're dreaming, bro. They say, you, you, you can do whatever you want. You can throw us in the fire, and we're willing to go in the fire. But we cannot, we will not bow down to your idol. So you can be submissive and disobedient in the same way that you can actually be obedient and yet retain your rebellion. Submission is an attitude of heart, and God wants that from us. God requires us, if we're going to be deliverers, to learn how to function under authority so that authority might flow through us. 
where possible and where appropriate, we are to be both submissive and obedient. But where we cannot be obedient to an unjust law, we can still manifest a gracious, humble attitude in our refusal to obey. Remember Dr. King's words, openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. Shipra and Pua, the two uh, midwives, Jochebed and the princess, all disobey Pharaoh's commands, and yet there is not a hint of arrogance or rebellion in any of their language or any of their behavior. And they stand as good and godly examples to us as we seek to live wisely and with discernment at this time in history. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.